From the Center for Contemporary South Asia at Brown University, this is Sensing the Sacred. I'm Finian Garrity. Welcome to Sensing the Sacred, where we delve into the past and present of religion, politics, and society in South Asia, highlighting the latest academic research through conversations with leading scholars. Would it surprise you to learn that most people in contemporary India believe in God? That Shiva is the most popular Hindu deity? That while half of Indians meditate weekly, only a third have ever practiced yoga? These are just a few of the findings of the Pew Research Center's report on religious life in India. This survey is based on face-to-face interviews with some 30,000 adults, conducted in 17 languages across the nation's many regions. Published this past summer, the Pew Report is a major milestone in the study of South Asian religions. It represents the most extensive, publicly available data ever collected on religion in Indian society, including the intersection with politics, caste, and identity. One of the report's big themes comes through in the title, Religion in India, Tolerance and Segregation. Even as most Indians value religious diversity and share beliefs and practices across faiths, they nevertheless prefer to keep their communities separate, and they don't always feel they have much in common with each other. To learn more, I sat down with Neha Segal, the report's lead author and a specialist in international polling on religion. Segal is Associate Director of Research at the Pew Research Center a nonpartisan think tank that studies global trends and attitudes. While she has long been eager to study religion in India, she told me that colleagues often advised her to steer clear because the topic was deemed too controversial. Lucky for us, however, Segal took on the challenge. Pew has now made the findings available for scholars, students, and the public to interpret and debate. I began our interview by asking Neha how folks had reacted to the report so far. One finding that has surprised a number of people is this unique concept of pluralism or tolerance in Indian society. Uh, Whereas in a Western society, people aspire to what we would call a melting pot model of tolerance, where people make friends with each other, lines between religious groups or racial groups, etc., are meant to be crossed. Whereas for Indians, the concept of tolerance is kind of different. It's more of a patchwork quilt society, where people see tolerance in their society and they see it in a widespread way, at the same time, their concept of tolerance is to maintain the segregation among religious groups. So you get this visual picture of a patchwork quilt, or if you had to use a food metaphor, you could use the metaphor of a Thali model uh, of pluralism. Right, sure. So it's a meal that consists of many different dishes. But all separate. (laughs) Exactly. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about this, these two ideas that you brought up, tolerance and, and segregation, because there's a lot of data on the kind of sharing of beliefs and practices that it would seem to attest to interactions across religious boundaries. And as you said, the report emphasizes a shared value of tolerance. And your data shows that this is not only a religious value, but a civic or societal one. And that religious tolerance seems to be part of what it means to be quote, truly Indian. And then on the other hand, respondents indicated that they have a strong perception of difference 
from other religions and seek to maintain separate lives, what you just referred to as segregation. So there seems to be a tension here, and it's apparent even in the name chosen for the report, Religion in India, Tolerance and Segregation. Can you unpack this a little more for us? Why are these the two themes that really jumped out to you as a way to explain your findings? So we asked people a number of questions about how important they consider tolerance to be to their religious identity, to their national identity, without actually using the word tolerance. So we asked people, for example, uh, how important is it to respect all religions to be truly Indian? Is that very important or not important? We also asked them how important is it to respect other religions to be a Muslim or to be a Hindu. Uh, Is that very important uh, part of what being a Muslim or a Hindu means to you? And in both instances, we do find that people consider respect for others or what we're calling tolerance to be a highly regarded value. They say it's very important to respect all religions, to be truly Indian. And they also say that that's an important part of what being a Muslim means to them. However, the lines among religious groups in India are stark. And people want to maintain those lines. So one good example is uh, attitudes toward interreligious marriage. Interreligious marriage is very uncommon in India. Nearly universally, marriages in India do not cross faith lines. And people want to keep it that way. So if we ask them, uh, how important is it to stop women in our community or men in our community from marrying into other religions? Overwhelmingly, people said this is very important. Among Hindus, that was about two thirds of Hindus saying that that's very important, stop both women and men from marrying into other religions. Among Muslims, it was even more widespread uh, a sentiment. Roughly 80% of Muslims said that it's important to stop Muslim men and women from marrying into other religions. And it wasn't just about marriage. It's also about how people live their daily lives, who their friends are. They tend to keep their friendship circles confined to their own religious group. They they tell us either all of their friends are of the same religion or most of them are of the same religion. And for some people, by, by no means a majority, but a substantial share of people, they would also rather live in religiously segregated neighborhoods. So about 36% of Hindus say that they would not be willing to accept a Muslim in their neighborhood. And roughly a quarter of Muslims say that they wouldn't want a Christian in their neighborhood. So over and over again, you get this indication that while tolerance is a deeply held value in a number of ways, segregation is also a part of people's lives and they want to keep it that way in who they marry, who their friends are and where they live. Now, that could be a tension, as you're, you're rightly pointing out. Part of what we have to think about as public opinion researchers or consumers of, of this data is where is the tension? Is the tension in our minds or in people's minds? Right? And, and, you know, so, and so for me as a, as a public opinion researcher, again and again, I feel like I have to get out of my own head right? and respect what people told me to be their story and their life. And this is what they told me, that they do not, in their lives, do not see the two in conflict with each other. Or if even if they do see uh, these opinions as in conflict with each other, it, it didn't seem to cause any cognitive dissonance for them. Uh, they expressed both opinions really strongly. Well, let me circle back to some of the a specific finding that surprised me based on my assumptions, you might say, as a historian of religions uh, and a religious studies scholar. And that has to do with karma and reincarnation. If we posit kind of a typical world religions textbook, right, with all its problems, the idea of rebirth in future lives, uh, 
samsara, based on actions in this life, karma, is associated doctrinally with Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism, but not with Islam and Christianity. And yet the report shows that karma is one of the many instances of beliefs being shared across these religious boundaries. What does your data tell us about this? Uh, Great question. Karma, as as you pointed out very eloquently, is theologically a Hindu belief. And indeed in India, 77% of Hindus say that they believe in karma. Uh, keep in mind, we did not define karma for the respondent. We let them come up with their own definition in their own mind. It's not surprising that a vast majority of Hindus in India do say they believe in karma. What is interesting and surprising is that an identical share of Muslims, 77%, and substantial shares among other religious groups in India also say they believe in karma. Now, again, the definition is up to them. And of course, you may say, hey, karma is almost pop culture in India. And it's almost pop culture in the U.S. Right? It's like it's everywhere. It's in Bollywood. It's um, songs and movies, right? So maybe you know it's just caught on like that. Uh, so to be sure, we also asked about a couple other beliefs that are also specific to Hinduism. A good example is: Does the Ganges River have the power to purify? You know, this is a quintessential Hindu belief, and not surprisingly, the vast majority of Hindus do believe that the Ganges River has the power to purify. But so do roughly a third of Christians. So here you see in a society that's a patchwork quilt, maintains its clear lines of segregation among religious groups, but somehow these beliefs and practices have found a way to permeate those lines that are otherwise very important social markers. Those are obviously majoritarian Hindu beliefs, right? Hindus being the majority uh, demographically in the country that are shared by smaller groups. Was there any indication that these things went in the reverse? That is to say, a Muslim observance or Christian observance that might have caught on among Hindus? Some. It's not to the same extent, and that's understandable. The vast majority of, of Indians are Hindus, but you do see some flow in the other direction. Uh, some Hindus, it's not that high a number, but roughly 7% of them do say that they celebrate Eid, Christmas, is popular among uh, some Hindus, and by no means a majority. Well, I've spent time in Kerala, in Fort Kochi in particular, where there's a very enthusiastic Christmas celebration that is shared widely by groups, Hindus, Muslims, and Christians, including the burning of Christmas Papa or Santa, this massive Santa in effigy. Well, my own research deals with mantras and sacred sound, and I often find myself drawn to studying religious practices as opposed to beliefs. And in fact, the name of this podcast, Sensing the Sacred, signals my interest in the senses, the body, material culture, practices as a way to study religion. So let me pick a few examples from your sections on practices, and maybe you can kind of briefly react to them. What did you find out about devotional song, for instance? We've known for some time that Asian religions emphasize practice more than they emphasize belief. And we do see practice being very central to people's lives, and particularly home practice. With regard to devotional singing, this is common among Hindus. A majority of Hindus do say they engage in devotional singing. It's also common among Jains, but also among Christians. Now, let's keep in mind that like singing in church, etc., is a 
know, it's a big part of Christian practice as well. But some other aspects too, uh, for example, having an altar in the home or a holy basil in the home, these are really widespread practices. So praying at home uh, and having these things at home is actually more common than even going to the temple and performing puja. And it's especially common for Hindu women. Uh, to do these things at home. So we get the sense of, you know, high levels of religious practice, which exceed the level of religious belief, and the religious practice being centered uh, around the home. What about reading sacred texts? Yeah, reading sacred texts is another one that's common, uh, particularly among the Sikh community. Uh, so, of course, the Guru Granth Sahib is the Sikh sacred book, and it's uh, popularly read in the Gurdwara and in people's homes. And 70% of Sikhs say that they do uh, read their religion sacred texts. We also asked about listening to sacred texts, since uh, you know, we have to be mindful uh, of literacy rates. Uh, and similarly, among uh, Christians, a majority of Christians saying that they read sacred texts. Among Hindus, it's a bit lower, but 22% of Hindus saying that they read or listen to sacred texts. And that might point toward the importance of the Gita. But the Gita is not the book for Hindus, the way the Guru Granth Sahib is for Sikhs, or the Bible is. Right? So it's not a religion of the book in that sense. Like, there's several sacred texts. and Reading them is important, but for the vast majority of Hindus, it's clearly not a practice they do on a regular basis, at least when you compare with uh, performing puja or devotional singing, those are much more common. Yeah. Well, let me dig into that a little bit more because you happen to hit on some themes that are crop up again and again in my own research and, and teaching. You mentioned this idea of the Abrahamic religions, Christianity and Islam, and then also a Dharmic religion, Sikhism, that nevertheless is very much a religion of the book. And so that was very striking to me, your finding, that broad historical patterns where Islam and Christianity put a lot of emphasis on being religions of the book, even though they also emphasize sound and listening and chant and so forth. That comes out in the data to some extent. And by contrast, Hinduism over the long durée is very much rooted in, and Buddhism as well, in oral traditions, in practice. So it was very interesting to see data that would, that would seem to confirm those divides. On the other hand, I really liked your point that reading might betray our own or Euro-American assumptions about what it means to interact with the sacred text. It doesn't need to be printed. We don't need a printing press. It's just a weaving together of propositions, ideas, teachings that can be delivered from the voice of a teacher. It can be delivered from a family member. It can be delivered on a, a CD. So I really appreciated the way you included both reading and listening kind of on par, not elevating one above the other. That's evident in uh, kind of how people told their own story right, in India. I mean, the work we did in the, in the quantitative question is informed by the qualitative work that we did prior to developing the questionnaire. So uh, in a number of ways, the way we frame the question is how people told us their story in the ethnographic qualitative work. And they told us, well, I listen, I have a podcast, right? My Gurdwara has a loudspeaker and they play the Guru Granth Sahib. So I listen to that. A few more practices that were addressed by your report, uh, going on pilgrimages. What did you find out about that? 
Yeah, pilgrimages are common among Hindus. It's a majority among Sikhs as well. 62% of Sikhs think that they have gone on a pilgrimage. Less common among Muslims. 37% of Muslims saying that they have been on, on pilgrimage. Now, again, none of this can be understood out of the context of what pilgrimage means to these different communities. For Hindus, there are many pilgrimages or spots where you could go. There's no one pilgrimage and neither is there for Sikhs. But for Muslims, there's one pilgrimage, right? And perhaps that's why you see fewer Indian Muslims saying that they have been on, on a pilgrimage. What about animal sacrifice? That can be a fraught and contested issue when you have a society with groups that believe fervently in ahimsa, nonviolence, and other groups that believe fervently in the power and importance of animal sacrifice. Yeah, there are some big differences uh, on whether or not people have witnessed or participated in animal sacrifice for, for a religious reason. It's most common among Muslims, the majority of Muslims, and particularly Muslim men, saying that they have witnessed this or participated in this. Least common among Jens. That's not a huge surprise. But I think what's, what's interesting is the opinion of, of Hindus. It's not a big share. Some 40-some percent of Hindus say that they have either engaged in or witnessed animal sacrifice for, for religious reasons, but it's higher in the South. So in the South, there are a majority of Hindus who say that this has been part of their religious practice. There's a lot of regional variation. So the South being so different in some of these attitudes in the North, not just on religiously, like whether they engage in animal sacrifice or, or witness an animal sacrifice, but even the importance uh, of, uh, for example, avoiding beef to Hindu identity. And then that then bleeds into other political matters. As you said, for many Hindus, not eating beef is very important. And dietary laws and eating habits loom large in the making of religious identity more broadly for all groups. Yeah, so this study, we had an opportunity to break down Hindu identity a little bit you know, and ask people, what disqualifies a person from being a Hindu? Can a person who doesn't believe in God still call himself or herself a Hindu? How about a person who never goes to temple or never performs prayers? And then we also asked in that battery, how about a person who eats beef? Or how about a person who celebrates Eid or doesn't celebrate Hindu holidays? There you see this interesting contrast. For going to temple, believing in God, and praying, Hindu public opinion is divided. 50% of Hindus say that such a person cannot be a Hindu. To the other 50%, that's fine. These theological aspects, including belief in God, are not, in fact, central to, to Hindu identity. The one issue where there seemed to be more consensus on was eating beef. 72% of Hindus say that a person who eats beef cannot be a Hindu. So let's turn a little bit here to this nexus of religion and politics. Can you sum up what the report has to say about religion and Hindu nationalism, for example? For India's Hindus, being a Hindu is closely tied to authentic Indian identity. 64% of Hindus say that it is very important to be a Hindu to be truly Indian closely tied up with the nexus between religion and national identity is language. So we also have a slim majority of Hindus, about 59%, who say that speaking Hindi is very important to national identity. And altogether, roughly 50% of Hindus taking both positions. You have to both be a Hindu and speak Hindi to be authentically Indian. So what's the connection with politics? Well, and what we find is these are inherently political positions. So if you take a look at the BJP's vote share in the 2019 parliamentary election, 
Overall, you have roughly half of Hindus saying they voted for the BJP. But BJP's vote share is considerably higher among Hindus who see a close connection between religion and national identity. So among those who say it's very important to be a Hindu, to be truly Indian, 55% say they voted for the BJP. And by comparison, among those who don't see a connection between religion and national identity, BJP's vote share falls quite a bit to roughly a third. And it's the same exact pattern if you take a look at language. And that speaks to the fact that in India today, three things are deeply intertwined, religion, language, and politics. Yes. And some Hindu nationalist politicians promote what scholars refer to as Islamophobia and anti-Muslim policies. Uh, According to your report, would you say that Muslims feel discriminated against? So that depends on whether you see they have glass empty or half full. We did ask people if they feel that discrimination against Muslims is widespread in India. We also asked them if they personally have felt discriminated against because of their religion uh, within the last 12 months. And overall, we find that roughly one in five Muslims say that they have personally felt discriminated against in the last 12 months. Uh, while the majority of Muslims say they didn't experience this kind of discrimination, at least not recently. This share, however, can vary quite a bit regionally. So in the north of the country, which includes the national capital territory of Delhi, that number goes up to 40%. 40% of Muslims saying that they have experienced uh, recent religious discrimination. In the northeast of the country, you have over a third, roughly 36%, saying that they have experienced religious discrimination. But of course, in the northeast, perceptions of discrimination are high, all through. And no matter who you ask and what you ask with regard to discrimination, people in the Northeast, will they're much more likely than people elsewhere to see discrimination. So even though nationally you don't see a, you know, the majority of Muslims saying that they experience discrimination, regionally the story can be quite different. And then more broadly, all this reporting is framed by a society that your data also shows live segregated lives. So one would imagine there may not always be as many opportunities for for discrimination if people are separating themselves. I do think that one point uh, you made is is important, and that's that India is a highly religiously segregated society. So when people are answering questions about discrimination, they are answering in the context of that level of religious segregation. And clearly, in the view of Indians, social exclusion uh, or segregation does not count as discrimination. So many people said that they would rather not marry into other communities. They said they would rather not have people of other religions in their communities, but yet the discrimination numbers were were lower, right? So how does that happen? And I think the context is is important again, that uh, you know, society's concept of what is discrimination depends very much on what it perceives as fair. What societies conceive as fair, can change over time, uh, depending on the public discourse, it can change between generations. So in the US, I think it was the Carnegie study on on Indian Americans that found that younger Indian Americans are more likely to say they experience discrimination than their parents. And and so you wonder, how does that happen? The parents were were immigrants and number of cases, the younger people were born here. (laughs) But could it be that their expectations have changed? Well, let's take up caste. Your report affirms that caste remains a major factor in Indian social organization and attitudes. 
Can you tease out the relationship between religion and caste? The Indian census only asks uh, the caste question of Hindus, Buddhists, but certainly doesn't ask Muslims and Christians. Those two groups are certainly excluded. And that's, of course, because of the, perhaps in part, there's a theological understanding that people have that you know, Islam doesn't have a caste system, or at least it's not mentioned in the Quran and neither does, does the Bible. We took a different approach. We asked all Indians their caste background, and we found that Muslims and Christians do identify their caste, as do Hindus, as do Sikhs, and as do Jains. Right? So nearly all Indians were able to very easily tell us their caste background, uh, showing that caste today is a universally known concept, and it's an identity marker, not just among Hindus, but among all of India's religious groups, whatever the theological uh, underpinnings or the theological roots of caste might be. And not only that, caste identity is also a social marker. So just as India is a religiously segregated society, it is also a caste segregated society, and not just among Hindus, but among all of the India's religious groups. So we also have Muslims who say it's very important to stop uh, women in their caste from marrying into other castes. We also have Muslims who say that they tend to make friends within their own caste uh, and, and so on. So again, the level of segregation being comparable to the level of, uh, of religious segregation. And as we were just discussing, all aspects of identity can become the basis for discrimination as well, in addition to cohesion among certain groups. So what does your report tell us about caste-based discrimination? The findings are quite similar to religious-based discrimination. We asked people if they had felt discriminated against because of their caste uh, recently, being in the last 12 months. Overall, we find that 20% or so of Dalit said that in the last 12 months, they felt caste discrimination. But again, it's the same story as religious discrimination. The story can be quite different regionally. So in the south of the country, 30% of Dalits said that they have faced recent caste discrimination. Uh, and similarly, in the northeast of the country, the numbers were higher. Again, pointing to the northeastern uh, perception of discrimination just being different overall. So again, that's quite interesting because in the South, uh, you have Dalits faring better socioeconomically than the rest of the country. And the South has a well-recorded history of uh, anti-caste movements. So, you know, so this result, right, of a higher share of Dalits in the South saying that they have experienced discrimination in some ways is counterintuitive. So why are people experiencing more discrimination in the South? But I think, again, we have to come back to a society's concept of what is fair can evolve with time. It depends on the discourse that that society is having. And what seems to be happening in the South is that discourse seems to be different from what you see elsewhere in the country. Yeah, these regional differences are, are so striking. And so let me return to this phrase that recurs several times in the report, truly Indian. On some level, just using that would seem to imply a monolithic, essentialist idea of nation, culture, and identity. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why did you decide to frame identity in this way? What we try to do is we come up with a battery of items uh, that probe different elements of true national identity. So to your point about the way the question is phrased of how important is X to being truly Indian implies that there's one way to be truly Indian. I definitely take that point. So what we allow people to do is give us uh, their answers on at least six or seven 
of these items and they're mixed right some so in india we asked how important is it to support the cricket team how important is it to respect indian institutions and laws how about respecting all religions how about standing for the national anthem i mean all of these are items that are discussed widely in the indian media and in indian public discourse and in our qualitative interviews they these came up again and again right so we found ways to incorporate all of these elements of of people's stories into a closed ended question and then what we do on our end is when we get the data back we run uh, some analyses on the battery of items and we see whether they group together in certain ways so we did find for example that speaking hindi and being a hindu those two elements highly correlated with each other which tells you that people who are who are taking those two positions have a particular concept of national identity but what i wouldn't recommend uh, for any analyst of, of this data is to take any one question out of the battery and just run with that so if people are telling us that uh, you know being a hindu is very important to being truly indian they're also saying that respecting all religions is very important to being truly indian and there appears to be kind of a push pull in their minds between the civic elements of national identity and the more nativist elements of national identity and it's important to tell that whole story i'm so glad to see that your report focuses on a broader spectrum hinduism islam their interactions yes but also christianity sikhism jainism buddhism how do you go about making sure that these smaller groups are equitably represented not just in terms of numbers but also that their concerns help set the agenda for the kinds of questions you might be asking Part of our background research for for this study did involve qualitative work. So we did uh, focus groups, we did cognitive interviews not just with Hindus and Muslims, but with smaller groups as well, with Christians. And we asked them to tell us their story. And on the, on some of these controversial issues. Uh, and then even when we were testing the questionnaire, we did so not just with Hindus and Muslims, but with other communities as well through cognitive interviewing. So there you ask people, you know, the survey question, then you ask them to explain, you know, why did they answer the way they did? What the question meant to them? How were they understanding it? So in both senses, like setting the agenda in a way that adequately captures the stories of these smaller groups and as well as designing questions that are valid for that group that can be understood that can be answered in a way that we are actually able to measure what we think we're measuring in both senses the study is designed to be able to capture the spectrum of religious identity in india not just the binary yeah and it is a very broad spectrum right so what about these even smaller minority religions that don't seem to be addressed by your surveys rastrianism bahai judaism or the religions of adivasis indigenous people so it's about 0.6% of the indian adult population that doesn't fall into the six groups right so then they would include parsis jews or other religions these groups were interviewed as part of the national sample but we do not have enough interviews with them to be able to separately talk about their opinions so if we had designed the sample such that we would also be able to represent parsis then we may have adequate interviews with parsis but given how small that group is the more granular you want to get the more the sample design the weighting etc needs to account for that right and you know there's a point at which we unfortunately drew a line and said all right we're going to try to get jans but we're not going to go deeper than that maybe next time <laughs> we'll be able to get the parsis well 
Neha, there's so much fascinating data here. I feel like my my head is spinning. But maybe you can help me learn a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of doing this kind of survey research on religious topics. And what I mean by that is how you go from questions to findings. Uh, So maybe if you could walk me through a representative line of questioning, one that jumped out at me was belief in God. And a big takeaway from the survey is that belief in God is a near universal belief in Indian society. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Something like 97% of your respondents. Okay, so more or less everyone believes in God. But obviously this doesn't tell the whole story because India's major religions have different gods and different conceptions of how one god might manifest. And so let me hone in on question 44 from your top line report, which was so fascinating to me. It gets at which God people feel closest to. And the top line says that for those who are not Christian and not Muslim, the questioner first, quote, shows a card with pictures of gods and goddesses, end quote. So let's start there. Why are images used? So my team had so many meetings just to figure out how we're going to ask about God. So yeah. this is great. I love talking about this because all my entire team that's listening is probably going to be holding their head just because of what we went through with the, for, for putting together this question. We study religion and understanding how, how people conceive of God is so phenomenally interesting and so important right? and so important to them personally that we really want to tell that story. So my team is thinking, okay, we have to ask people about Ishtadevta or personal God. That's very important in Hinduism. Uh, But how do we ask about it? We can't create, you know, what we can't do is create a list of like 50 gods or 25 gods and then have the interviewer read out 25 of them. You're going to lose the respondent at three. (laughs) <laughs> so too much cognitive burden, you know, or maybe the response is you had me at one and, <laughs> and we're done, right? That's going to create so much noise like in the data. So we started kind of racking our brain for how to do it. And one member of my team, Scott Gardner, came up with this brilliant idea. He's like, why don't we do a show card? Why don't we do images instead? Because even though gods have different names, their pictorial description is largely consistent, across different regions. And you can recognize Ganesh, whether it's a stylized Ganesh or a picture of a statue or some kind of artistic rendition, you can always tell it's Ganesh. So why don't we go with that? So we went with 16 images and we put them all on a card and then we handed the card to the respondent and we asked them, which three of these in order do you think you feel closest to? So that's kind of how that question came about. Yeah. And it at least in the case of Hindus, that method of survey research aligns so well with religious practice, right? And, and taking darshan and the importance of engaging in a, an icon or visual depiction. So next comes the question itself, right? And we're still walking through question 44, just in case anyone's lost track. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll read the question. Do you believe in God? Bracket, if yes. Do you feel closest to any God? If so, then which one? And then that follows a long list of options. I guess you said 16 from Ganesha to Kali to the sun to Jesus even. Uh, So drumroll, please. Everyone wants to know which gods topped the list. 
Well, you know, everybody loves a good popularity contest. Exactly. And in this case, uh, Shiva. <laughs> Shiva was the god that uh, was most popularly picked. 44% picked Shiva as one of the three options. Hmm. And how has that been received anecdotally in the press and in, in your conversations? Does this kind of arouse the uh, competitiveness of adherents of, you know, or devotees of one god versus another? I can imagine, you know, devotees of Rama might not take that kindly. So some people have expressed surprise that Ram was more popular. I think Ram was about 17%, so a lot, lot lower than Shiva, a lot lower than Ganesh. But in UP, Ram received you know more recognition. You had about 27% or so in, in UP saying that Ram is the Ishtevta. But I think overall people aren't too surprised. I mean, there's an element of Ram that is tied up with politics. And I think that's part of the reason people thought that Ram would be more popular. But I think overall, the findings tell us that religion and politics can often be closely intertwined, but often they are not. <laughs> and, you know, and then we have to just be open to capturing people's beliefs and, and representing those uh, and then letting people you know, take that where they may. The other thing to remember is that the gods that gained the most votes, they varied quite a bit, again, regionally. So in the Northeast, they have Krishna, most popular, and then Ganesh gained more popularity in the West, which is, again, not too surprising given you know, this number of festivals that are just dedicated to Ganesh in the West. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I will have to commend your team on this line of questioning because it, it brought up a lot of very interesting nuances about how people conceive of the divine and God. And one of those has to do with the religious studies concept of polytheism, which has been bitterly contested and criticized. And yet, world religions textbooks and a lot of instructors tend to characterize Hinduism, for example, as polytheistic. So what does your report tell us about the way people think about God as one or as many? Yeah, so we asked people if they believe in God, and then we followed up with, and which of these comes closest to your concept of God? Are there many gods? There's only one God, or there's one God with many manifestations? And among Hindus, the most popular uh, choice that people took was there's only one God with many manifestations. And some people did say there's only one God. It was roughly 30%. But very few Hindus said that there are many gods. Just about 7% say that there are many gods. So to the extent that there's this notion of, of polytheism being many gods, I mean, that doesn't seem to be an option that uh, that appeals to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, 7%, that's an extremely low number from my perspective. And it, I think it speaks to the need to really reassess textbooks and teaching in light of these emic views. Yeah, and most certainly, I mean, there's some debate in Hinduism but is it really a polytheistic religion because Brahma is considered the one God and everything else? Is that the, theologically, is that the correct understanding? You're absolutely right that as you can go all the way back to the Veda to find this belief that there's this underlying cosmic absolute Brahman that just encompasses everything and that any God you might encounter is just a manifestation of that. So this is something that theologians and scholars, I'm sure, will continue to to argue about. And that maybe that's why it's so refreshing to get this survey data that uh, amplifies the voices of Hindu devotees and lets them weigh in on this question. One that makes you pause and reflect and question your own assumptions. Speaking of assumptions, I mean, so many people globally, and with good reason, have tied India to spiritual pursuits like yoga and meditation. So what does your report tell us about these practices? 
I think yoga is an interesting one. So 62% of Indian Hindus told us they actually never do yoga. And uh, to the extent that yoga is popular, it's popular among younger people. And it's popular among highly educated people. So among people who are college educated, 56% say that they ever do yoga. Not necessarily on a daily basis, but ever. So to the extent that they, people have this image right in their mind that uh, yoga is in every street corner <laughs> right in, in India or popular depiction, doesn't quite appear to have, to have borne out. Meditation is more, more popular. I do find 32% of people saying that they meditate on a daily basis. And meditation, though, might be associated with Hinduism and Buddhism, we actually also find among Muslims that meditation is popular. We have about 41% of Muslims saying that they meditate on a daily basis. Again, the term is not defined for the respondent. They could be thinking about dhyan or they could be thinking just about sitting quietly for a little while. Uh, but those are the numbers. I think the data does seem to suggest although we don't have comparable data in the U.S., so it's hard to fully know. But you get this sense, right, that in the U.S., yoga is a college-educated, urban, young person thing. And, and similarly, <laughs> in India, <laughs> you're finding it's more popular among college-educated, younger people. So India may have given yoga to the world, but the world may be giving it <laughs> India back its own yoga. <laughs> so you did this survey, I guess, luckily, before covid and yet some of your questions do touch on religion and health. So what did you find when it comes to this interplay? Do folks turn to Ayurveda and homeopathy when they get sick? Yes, but I do think it's important to remember your first part of the question, that we wrapped up this survey right before the pandemic hit. Uh, we do find allopathic medicine, or what is commonly known as medical science uh, in, in India, is popular. People do place their trust in, in medical science. Ayurveda, uh, homeopathy, etc. is also popular. But what you don't see is people trusting Ayurveda, home remedy, or religious ritual more than they trust medical science. But as we try to wrap up this this conversation, I want to talk about the report in in broad terms. This is clearly a massive undertaking, years of work, uh, many millions of dollars, I'm sure, mountains of important data. Has a survey on this scale on religion in India ever been attempted? The Center for the Study for Developing Societies based in Delhi regularly surveys the Indian public and it does so with large sample sizes. And around 2014, 2015, they did do a religion survey in India, but they did not release the results of that survey. So it would be inaccurate to say that this is the first and only large religion survey in India, but it would be accurate to say it's the only publicly available uh, <laughs> religion survey in India. Well, let's talk about your team and maybe you can take us through the logistics. I mean, how do you even go about doing a project like this? How long does it take? How many people are involved? So this project took us start to finish three years and it had several phases. So phase one was essentially the qualitative work. That's where we began. We wanted to design the questionnaire based on how people told us their stories. So we held focus groups all throughout the country. We used those focus groups, created a questionnaire and then we held cognitive interviews throughout the country. I should also add that we have an imminent advisory board of uh, six advisors, um, all of whom are experts in India and many of whom have deep knowledge of the interplay between religion and politics. And they were involved in every step of the project as well, particularly in the questionnaire development. So once we're done with the questionnaire and the advisors have looked at it, provided feedback, 
we'll test the questionnaire through some qualitative work that comes back in. We revise it one more time. Translations are all complete at this point. Then we launched what we like to refer to as a pilot study. So typically for our surveys, we would want to do some test interviews before we actually launch the study. Here we did 2000 test interviews. Uh, and that was uh, to test out sensitivity, test our translations, test out our fieldwork procedures. So we tested all that out, incorporated some changes based on the pilot, and then went into the field finally in November 2019 for four months to do the to do the full study. And how do you recruit the interviewers and the respondents? And what we usually do is we'll work with the in-country field house that has a field force to develop a training manual whole training in different centers of the countries. Recruiting respondents is a strategy that is a sampling strategy that's fairly written about and well-documented in the literature. What you usually do is the interview team uh, moves in groups of three, the supervisor and two interviewers. They will approach a sampling point right, where they need to conduct, say, 10 interviews. And the first thing they will do is they will map out the entire sampling point. How many houses, where the house is approximately located? Is there a landmark feature where we begin our sampling? And then from there, they do what we call a random route procedure. So they will skip every third house or every fourth house. And that's determined through an algorithm, <laughs> which I won't get into. But uh, so, and sometimes it's just a toss a coin, right? But we want it to be random probability. What we don't want is the interviewer likes this house. So right. <laughs> that's what we want to avoid, okay. as long as it's probability. So they'll skip every third house. They'll knock on the door. And the person who opens the door is what we refer to as the informant. And they will work with that person to get a list of all household members. And then through a random procedure, they'll pick one person to be the interviewee. Again, that's not the decision of the interviewer because they're just going to pick who's home or they're going to pick somebody they like, right? <laughs> right? So, so we have to avoid these kinds of things from creeping in and that's going to bias the sample. So they'll pick the person who's going to be selected for the interview using a random procedure. And then that person will sit down for the interview. Interview on average took about 45 minutes. The response rate for this study is very high. Of all the respondents uh, we contacted to take this study, 90% of them completed the interview. That's very, very high. And I think that points to two things. One, the topic is very interesting to Indian audiences. If we'd done a survey about some boring topic, I doubt you know, we would have gotten to this higher response rate. And I also think the interviewers worked really hard. You know, they, they were very committed and, and they worked hard to get that interview. Yeah. And I assume that the interviewers as professionals were paid for their time. Are the respondents compensated in any way? Sometimes we do that if it's customary in a country, you know, to take a box of chocolates or something like that. Oh, um, but like in a, India, a, a gift of some kind. A gift of some kind, offer something. But um, in India, interviewees were not compensated. No. Okay. And what about funding for the the study itself? I mean, I, I know you probably can't discuss exact figures, but can you give me any sense of the overall cost and who pays for it? The overall cost is high. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know that's not a satisfying answer, uh, but your question about who pays for it, that's uh, that question I can give a very specific answer to. Uh, we uh, Our work is funded primarily by the Pew Charitable Trust. They fund nearly all of the work we do. But for bigger studies, uh, like the National Religion Surveys, we also seek funding from the John Templeton Foundation. They have long supported our work uh, on religion around the world. Let's talk a little bit about how you preserve your editorial independence, how the Pew Research Center insulates itself from, let's say, the ideological commitments of funders past 
and present. I'm not well-versed in the history, really, of the Pew Charitable Trust, but a little poking around on the internet reveals that the trusts, at least, were initially founded with wealth from the heirs to the Sun Oil Company, better known to most Americans as Sunoco. How do you navigate this? Because it's almost axiomatic for a lot of social scientists that there's no such thing as pure objectivity. We're all enmeshed in these networks of power. Yes, theoretically, all of what you said is true. On a practical level for us, our editorial independence, our research independence is of utmost importance. And uh, maintaining that above all else is priority number one. So whenever we have entered into funding arrangements with organizations outside the Pew Charitable Trust or even with the Pew Charitable Trust, it is with the understanding that we maintain complete editorial control and our research is our research. You have provided the funds, right? And, and they understand that as well. Uh, and part of why John Templeton Foundation or other organizations that look to the Pew Research Center to provide us with funds to do our work is because they value the fact that we maintain our independence. So we enter into that partnership with holding our nonpartisan, non-ideological position in high value on both ends. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't surprise me, uh, given the reputation of the Pew Research Center, that you're staunchly independent from study design through explanation or interpretation. But that brings me to one question I really wanted to make sure to ask you. What about interpretation, right? You delivered this feast of data to the world to keep the food metaphor going. (laughs) What is this for? What suggestions do you have, let's say, for scholars and teachers like me or my colleagues for using these findings in their teaching and research? I can offer some ways that the data has been used in the past, and I can also kind of revert back to our mission. Our main normative position, this is one of the few normative positions that we take at the Pew Research Center, is that knowledge is a public good. And a good citizenry, an informed citizenry, is beneficial right, to any to any country. And part of the way you have an engaged, informed citizenry is by having free access to knowledge and by making public discourse based in that knowledge. So my sincere hope with India and what we've been able to do with this project is take this landmine issue of religion, which when we first started thinking about doing this project, people told us don't do it. It's a reputational risk. Why don't you just study Europe? You know, just do a big study in Germany. (laughs) Why do you want to do this, take on this landmine project in a country where it's known to be like such a sensitive issue? Why do you want to do this? But, you know, we took it on anyway. If there is a place where public discourse on on this kind of subject could be more grounded in data, it's India. So my sincere hope is that we have provided data that people can use in their public discourse, in their conversations. A good example are the findings on conversion. There is widespread speculation in India about conversion and conversion out of Hinduism to Christianity in particular. How much is it happening? Where is it happening? Almost all of the discussion so far has been grounded in people's personal experience, their perception, and some ethnographic work. There has been an absence of data right, on this. It's an empirical question, right, but there is no data on it. So what I hope we have done is provided the data. Now, you can interpret the findings on conversion as being, oh my God, there's widespread conversion in India, 
Or you could interpret them as, wow, this is a lot less than I thought it would. But both opinions are grounded in the same set of facts, which means people can engage with each other. And I think personal experience is valuable. It's an important part of the discourse. I just want to say that at the outset. But there is one very serious limitation. It's not refutable. So it is not the basis of public discourse beyond a certain point. Right? People can't engage, right? Your personal experience is yours. Mine is mine. What do we talk about? <laughs> data is refutable. Right? And data provides a level of transparency that people can then use to further the discourse and just as importantly to further the research. So what I also hope we have been able to prove is that it is possible to study this topic in a very public way. And it's possible to discuss the research findings on this topic in a very public way. We have done it at, at risk, at risk that we were warned about. But I hope that that gives confidence to other researchers that we can study this. I hope it furthers the field in addition to kind of providing the data, which we will, the entire data set will be available to researchers, to students, and they can analyze it further. If you find an issue with the way that we have interpreted the data, have at it. <laughs> Do it differently, run a different factor analysis. And by you, I mean the proverbial you, not you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably won't be doing any factor analysis anytime soon. <laughs> one, of your, one of your students might be interested. <laughs> exactly. In no, you're right. F further the research, right? And then publish the results. And you know, it's possible. It's possible to do it in a public way. Let me finish up by asking you a more personal question about your own story. How did you get into this line of research? So maybe you guessed this so far already in this conversation, but I am an immigrant. <laughs> I was actually born in India. I have worked on religion surveys around the world. We did one in Sub-Saharan Africa when I first signed up with the Pew Research Center. We did one in Latin America, Middle East, uh, Europe, both Eastern Europe and Central Europe, and then after going through so many parts of the world, we finally arrived in India, the country where I was born. So this project has been, uh, in many ways, a, a personal labor of love <laughs> right, right for me. Uh, but my personal story is religion and politics has always fascinated me. I, Because I grew up in India, I saw the importance of religion to people's identity. I saw the important role it plays in politics and public discourse. Uh, and I always felt that this is a field that could really benefit from more academic engagement uh, and in a quantitative way, right? We can measure all this. And why isn't anybody measuring it? It's measurable. <laughs> so I went on to the University of Maryland. I got my PhD at the University of Maryland. I wrote a dissertation on um, Islam and politics in, in Pakistan, as well as in Egypt. Religion has always fascinated me in, in so many ways that I feel like religion is an important part of people's identity, even if they don't believe in religion. So if they say that they're an atheist or they're completely secular, that is their identity. And that becomes an important marker of their social attitudes, their political attitudes. So in some sense, understanding a society is to understand its religion and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, that very much resonates with me. And just from a religious studies perspective, I just really want to thank you. You've done a real service, I think, to our field in showing that even if we're ethnographers, even if we study texts, we still uh, can learn a lot by engaging with quantitative data. And, and this data is really compelling on, on every level. I mean, you can just pick a line of questioning and kind of dig down into it. And there's so much to discover there. So Neha Segal, thank you so much for joining me on Sensing the Sacred. I really enjoyed this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Finn. 
This episode of Sensing the Sacred was produced by me, Finian Garrity, with assistance from Emma Eaton. Special thanks to Alina Coleman, who made valuable contributions to our first six episodes, but has now moved on to other pursuits. Sensing the Sacred will be back soon with a new conversation. In the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, or recommend us to your friends and colleagues. To learn more about Sensing the Sacred and to explore the Pew Report in greater detail, visit our website. We'll put links in the show notes. Thanks for listening.